0: Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures.
1: Yeah, we love them. This
0: episode, we are going over the Come, Follow Me lesson for February 15th through 21st, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 14 through 17. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. The Scriptures.
1: Yay, scriptures!
0: Oh, it's just like sunshine when they come in. And now let's consult the Scripturmatic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. Eight minutes, 51 seconds.
1: And what would that be daily?
0: That would be one minute, 16 seconds.
1: Um, Think of all the extra time we have to study. Oh, yeah. This is going to be great. Take your time. Explore. And one of the things that will make the chapters that we're talking about so much more meaningful is to use the information that helps you to know why these revelations happened. The more we do that, and we're going to do that today, the more rich and nuanced we will be able to understand these revelations. And with one minute and 16 seconds of reading a day, you've got lots of time to read some background on these revelations. Now, here we've got time codes if you want to jump to these individually. And with that, let's just get started. Okay, so
0: let's talk about what's happened so far. It is May 1829. Joseph and Oliver were translating the plates in Harmony, Pennsylvania. They had been visited by John the Baptist. They received the Aaronic Priesthood and they baptized each other. And we talked about Joseph and Polly Knight providing food and provisions for Joseph and Oliver so that they could continue their work. So now let's introduce a new pivotal family in the restoration of the church. These are the Whitmers. From Revelation in Context, we wanted to talk first about how Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer knew each other. It says, quote, More than five decades before the Book of Mormon was published, David Whitmer recalled how he first heard of the Book of Mormon. I made a business trip to Palmyra, New York in 1828, and while there, stopped with one Oliver Cowdery. A great many people in the neighborhood were talking about the finding of certain golden plates by one Joseph Smith, Jr., a young man of that neighborhood. Cowdery and I, as well as others, talked about the matter, The exact details of how 23-year-old Whitmer and 22-year-old Cowdery met are unknown, but the two men quickly struck up a friendship. Cowdery said he was acquainted with the Smith family, Whitmer continued, and he believed there must be some truth in the story of the plates, and that he intended to investigate the matter. Whitmer, who implied that he made more than one trip to Palmyra, conducted his own investigation and had conversations with several young men who said that Joseph Smith had certainly golden plates. These parties were so positive in their statements that I began to believe there must be some foundation for the stories then in circulation. David Whitmer, a farmer from Fayette Township, New York, about 30 miles southeast of Palmyra, And Oliver Cowdery, a Vermont native who had recently been hired by Hiram Smith and other school trustees to teach in the Manchester area, agreed to keep each other informed of what they discovered. At this time, neither of them had met Joseph Smith, who was then living in Harmony, Pennsylvania with his wife Emma. Cowdery, whose students included children of Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, eventually boarded with the Smith family. Lucy wrote that Cowdrey soon began to importune Mr. Smith upon the subject of the plates, but did not succeed in eliciting any information for a considerable length of time. At last, he gained my husband's confidence so far as to obtain a sketch of the facts relative to the plates. The conversation with Joseph, Sr. had a powerful effect on Cowdrey. The subject seems working in my very bones, he told the Smiths. I have made it a subject of prayer, and I firmly believe that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to Harmony to assist Joseph with the translation. Cowdery also announced this news apparently in a letter to Whitmer. Cowdery told me he was going to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and see him, Joseph Smith, about the matter. Whitmer wrote, He did go, and on his way stopped at my father's house and told me that as soon as he found out anything, either truth or untruth, he would let me know. Joseph and Oliver Cowdery began their translation project on April 7, 1829, and worked intensely over the next eight weeks. During that time, Cowdery wrote three letters to Whitmer discussing the translation process and offering particular information on the content of the Book of Mormon. When Cowdery wrote me these things and told me that he had revealed knowledge concerning the truth of them, I showed these letters to my parents and brothers and sisters, Whitmer recalled. Okay, so that's how David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdrey knew each other, even before the translation process started, or at least with Oliver Cowdrey. And so now David has been receiving letters from Oliver Cowdrey, and he's been sharing these letters with his parents and brothers and sisters. From the Church History and the Fullness of Times, we learn that because of persecution in Harmony, the Whitmers volunteered to move Joseph and Emma and Oliver to their home in Fayette. Quote, Persecution began to intensify in the Harmony area. So late in May, Oliver communicated with David about the possibility of Joseph and Oliver going to stay with the Whitmers in Fayette. In response, Peter Whitmer Sr., David's father, invited Joseph to stay at his farm home as long as was needed to finish the work of translation. David's brother John offered to help as Joseph's scribe. Many people in the Fayette area were anxious to hear more about the work. A late May planting was essential for successful fall crops, therefore David Whitmer had to plow and prepare the soil before he could take his two-horse wagon to pick up Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery.
1: Now, this is an interesting story that is recorded by Joseph Smith's mother, she says. Speaking of David Whitmer, he then fastened his horses to the harrow, and instead of dividing the field into what is by farmers usually termed lands, drove around the whole of it, continuing thus until noon. When on stopping for dinner, he looked around and discovered, to his surprise, that he had harrowed in full half the wheat. After dinner, he went on as before, and by evening had finished the whole two days' work. His father, on going into the field the same evening, saw what had been done, and he exclaimed, "'There must be an overruling hand in this, and I think you would better go down to Pennsylvania as soon as your plaster of Paris is sown.' The next morning, David took a wooden measure under his arm and went out to sew the plaster, which he had left two days previous, in heaps near his sister's house. But on coming to the place, he discovered that it was gone. He then ran to his sister and inquired of her if she knew what had become of it. Being surprised, she said, Why do you ask me? Was it not all sown yesterday? Not to my knowledge, answered David. "I am astonished at that," replied his sister, "for the children came to me in the forenoon and begged of me to go out and see the men sew plaster in the field, saying that they never saw anybody sew plaster so fast in their lives. I accordingly went and saw three men at work in the field, as the children said, but supposing that you had hired some help on account of your hurry, I went immediately into the house and gave the subject no further attention. David made considerable inquiry in regard to the matter, both among his relatives and neighbors, but was not able to learn who had done it. You know what's interesting? Today we don't know. Well, it's true. And grateful for this divine intervention, David Whitmer hurried off on the three-day journey to harmony. But notice at least two ways that God helped David prepare. The first thing he did was inspired his mind and strengthened his ability. Remember the first thing that happened was that the field got plowed. It was two days work, it got done in one day, but it also appears, if I understand this right, to have gotten done in a way that was unconventional. He seemed inspired to try a new way of plowing the field. Now, maybe if he did that again, it wouldn't have the same effect, but in this case, the Lord seems to have inspired him to do something different and perhaps strengthened his ability to do that work. Then another piece of help, another need was that the seed needed to be sowed with plaster of Paris. In this case, he had others that were called to serve. I just find it neat how the Lord uses different means to teach us different things about how he can get the work done in his kingdom.
0: Skipping down in the Church History in the Fullness of time's story, the group arrived in Fayette about the 1st of June. Emma, who had remained behind to care for the house in harmony, soon joined her husband in Fayette. Meanwhile, the translating resumed at once. The Whitmer family was most gracious in providing for the needs of Joseph, Emma, and Oliver Cowdery. So that introduces the Whitmers. Now Joseph and Emma and Oliver have moved from Harmony, Pennsylvania to Fayette. There's an additional quote that I wanted to include from Joseph Smith's Revelations, a Doctrine and Covenants study companion from the Joseph Smith Papers. It says, quote, Joseph Smith's history recorded that David, John, and Peter Whitmer, Jr. became our zealous friends and assistants in the work, and being anxious to know their respective duties and having desired with much earnestness that I should inquire of the Lord concerning them. I did so through the means of the Urim and Thummim and obtained for them in succession the following revelations. Quote.
1: And before we get to those revelations, which I'm very excited to do, but let me give you just a quick perspective on what's happening and the timeline. And for this, I'm going to turn to a resource here in the Doctrine and Covenants Central website. We've mentioned this before, it's from the folks at Book of Mormon Central. This is a wonderful collection of resources on each section, and one of them is a timeline. Take a look at the events here. What we just talked about, those things were taking place in late May of 1829. But look at everything that's happening in June. Joseph and Oliver moved to Fayette, that's the first to the third of June. And then the Book of Mormon translation recommences. The Book of Mormon copyright is secured on the 11th of June. These revelations we're about to talk about in 14, 15, and 16 were received between the 5th and the 14th of June. And then Hiram Smith, David Whitmer, Peter Whitmer Jr., they're all baptized, which is rather exciting. And that's prior to the receiving of Doctrine and Covenants 17. And then the witnesses see the plates. That's coming up. And then sometime before June 14th, 1829, Peter, James, and John appear to Joseph and Oliver, and the Melchizedek priesthood is restored, which is remarkable. And before the month ends, the Book of Mormon translation is complete. Wow! That's an amazing month. And you get a great perspective of it here using this timeline. So just remember that as a resource. Now, let's get into these revelations that are so important in this month and at this time. I guess one other thing, think of all that was sacrificed and given to move Oliver and Joseph and Emma up to Fayette and take care of them. I think the Lord is just pouring out his blessings to everybody here. We've got this group who are ready to go and the Lord can do so much work with them. So let's take a look. In Doctrine and Covenants section 14, this is the revelation to David Whitmer. Now, if we just do a cursory glance at the beginning, we'll see language that's been very familiar in other callings. For example, Doctrine and Covenants 4, which was to Joseph Smith Sr., and even 6 to Oliver Cowdery and 11 to Hiram Smith. And
0: even 12 to Joseph Knight.
1: Right. And so if we can look at this, but understand that even though we could say, oh, it's the same language, but this was still given to an individual and so what does this mean when we look at phrases like this in verse 1? A marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. What did David Whitmer experience that would have made those words personal and even potent to him? Remember the experience of the plowed field, of the plaster of Paris, of God revealing his hand Already, so that David could go and get Joseph and Oliver. He has already seen what that begins to look like. And in verse 2, behold, I am God. Give heed to my word. To what extent has David Whitmer already understood the importance of that? In verse 3, behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. What about this? What does he know about the importance of a field prepared for harvest? This may not be what it's referring to, but I find it interesting that David Whitmer just had that experience of his field being plaster of Paris, you know, dusted with white powder. The field is white. Does that remind him the miracle that was just performed for him? All ready to harvest? Therefore, if you will ask of me, you shall receive. Has he already experienced some things like this that would help strengthen his testimony in these things? Or to what extent do these help him to look forward and to review the way the Lord has worked in his life already? So, yes, we know these verses. They've been given to others, but the Lord is still giving them individually, and they might mean very specific things to those people. And I think that's True here of David. Agreed.
0: So let's look at verse 7. And if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Now, first of all, that's fascinating, but I wanted to include a couple of quotes. This first quote that talks about the concept of enduring to the end is from the Doctrine and Covenants Institute Manual, and I realized something late in the game here. I want to just do a quick note. Up until now, I have quoted from the Doctrine and Covenants Institute Manual, but I realized late that I was quoting from the 2001 Institute Manual. And so this may have been confusing to you for some because a new manual was released in 2018. So to clarify, I am quoting now from the 2018 Doctrine and Covenants Student Institute Manual. And at times when I do quote from the 2001 manual, I will specify it's the 2001 manual.
1: And for those of you who are not familiar with either one, you really should. The 2018 is a wonderful update, and it's neat that they keep both those manuals there because they both have um, some overlap but also some different resources. The graphics, pictures, and maps are really cool, the updated ones in the 2018. So, recommended.
0: Very good. Well, back to the quote. This, again, is from the 2018 Institute Manual. This is a quote from Elder Joseph B. Wirthlin from the October 2004 General Conference in regards to enduring to the end. He says, quote, Some think of enduring to the end as simply suffering through challenges. It is so much more than that. It is the process of coming unto Christ and being perfected in Him. Enduring to the end is the doctrine of continuing on the path leading to eternal life after one has entered into the path through faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. Enduring to the end requires our whole heart. Enduring to the end means that we have planted our lives firmly on gospel soil staying in the mainstream of the church, humbly serving our fellow men, living Christ-like lives, and keeping our covenants, end quote. So that's enduring to the end, but what about eternal life? From the Come, Follow Me manual, we have a really great quote from President Russell M. Nelson. This is from April 2012 General Conference, in which he says, quote, Under God's great plan of happiness families can be sealed in temples and be prepared to return to dwell in his holy presence forever. That is eternal life, end quote. So that gives some really good perspective. And that's something that may not have been clear to David even at that time.
1: Oh, no doubt. But it would be. Yeah, that's to come. That's one of the tricky things to realize is how long it will take. The kinds of things God has revealed to us today, that took time. And sometimes a long time. But regardless, I'm sure that he is comforted by that notion of this is what it takes to be in the presence of God. Going on in verse 8. And it shall come to pass that if you shall ask the Father in my name, in faith, believing, you shall receive the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance, that you may stand as a witness of the things of which you shall both hear and see and also that you may declare repentance under this generation
0: now that's a bit of foreshadowing isn't it you may stand as a, a witness. witness of the things which you shall both hear and see now yeah. as jay pointed out in that timeline david whitmer is going to be one of the three witnesses in a few weeks
1: well or days even or days yeah, yeah we don't really soon, know the exact day
0: after. but then skipping down to verse 11 we get a final admonition and behold Thou art David, and thou art called to assist, which things, if ye do and are faithful, ye shall be blessed both spiritually and temporally, and great shall be your reward. Amen. What do
1: you think this verse meant to David? Look, anytime you get that personal response, God calling you by name, thou art David. God knows him. He has a place in this work. That's the next thing. You are David, and you are called to assist. And then promised blessings for faithful service, which will be both spiritual and temporal. And again, he's already gotten a taste of what that will be like, how God will make all things possible through his power. It's amazing.
0: Well, let's go on to Doctrine and Covenants sections 15 and 16. Now, you may have noticed that every time section 15 or section 16 is addressed, they are always addressed together. When you study them, they're always bundled together. Why is that? Well, the revelation for 15 is to John Whitmer. This is David's brother. And 16 is to Peter Whitmer Sr., who is... John and David's father. But they are bundled together because, aside from the name addressed in verse 1, they're identical. The
1: exact same words. Now, we mentioned this before. Regardless of the sameness of the words, they were still given to individuals. And they have their own experiences with God. We don't have reference to what all of this means, but God does. And so, even though the words are the same, it will mean something very specific to each person. And the fact that sometimes people are called to the same calling is of no concern to me, but I just think it's important to know that it's not so much the words as what those words will mean to us, and God knows what those are, which is why those names are in there.
0: Well, I will be referencing Doctrine and Covenants section 15 for this study, but remember again that the words in these verses are the same in section 16. Verse three, and I will tell you that which no man knoweth save me and thee alone. Now that's interesting. Do you remember when we were talking about section six, Doctrine and Covenants section six, verse 16 in particular? This is very similar to Oliver Cowdery's experience.
1: Well, and this is another great example because what is that? (laughs) No man knoweth save me and thee alone I'm sure those are not the same things between his brother and his dad. So there's something unique that the Lord is referencing there and they know what that is. Right.
0: Verse 4, For many times you have desired of me to know that which would be of the most worth unto you. Behold, blessed are you for this thing and for speaking my words which I have given you according to my commandments. And now, behold, I say unto you, that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people, that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Amen. Wow. So it would seem, even on the outset, if you're looking at this objectively, that John and his father Peter may have had the same desire, but may not have even talked to each other about it. Mm-hmm. From the Institute Manual, I found a good quote from Elder M. Russell Ballard that talks about the concept of why bringing souls unto me is of most worth. This is from April 2003, General Conference. He says, quote, Don't ever forget, brothers and sisters, that you and I have in our possession the very points of doctrine that will bring people to the Lord. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ has within it the power to bring deep and abiding happiness, to the human soul, something that will be valued and cherished for the rest of time and for all eternity. We are not just trying to get people to join our church. We are sharing with them the fullness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. But as powerful as our message is, it cannot be imposed or forced upon people. It can only be shared, heart to heart, soul to soul, Spirit to spirit, by being good neighbors, and by caring and showing love.
1: That's fantastic. Now, it wasn't just David and John and Peter Sr. who have received revelation or witnesses as to their part in this work. This account comes from Saints Volume 1, Chapter 7, and it's about Mary Whitmer, the boy's mother. Once Joseph, Emma, and Oliver moved to Fayette, David's mother had her hands full. Mary Whitmer and her husband Peter already had eight children between the ages of 15 and 30, and the few who did not still live at home resided nearby. Tending to their needs filled Mary's days with work, and the three house guests added more labor. Mary had faith in Joseph's calling and did not complain, but she was getting tired. The heat in Fayette that summer was sweltering. As Mary washed clothes and prepared meals, Joseph dictated the translation in an upstairs room. Oliver usually wrote for him, but occasionally Emma or one of the Whitmers took a turn with the pen. Sometimes when Joseph and Oliver tired of the strain of translating, they would walk out to a nearby pond and skip stones across the surface of the water— Mary had little time to relax herself, and the added work and the strain placed on her were hard to bear. One day, while she was out by the barn where the cows were milked, she saw a gray-haired man with a knapsack slung across his shoulder. His sudden appearance frightened her, but as he approached, he spoke to her in a kind voice that set her at ease. "'My name is Moroni,' he said. "'You have become pretty tired.' with all the extra work you have to do. He swung the knapsack off his shoulder, and Mary watched as he started to untie it. You've been very faithful and diligent in your labors, he continued. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. Moroni opened his knapsack and removed the gold plates. He held them in front of her, and turned their pages so she could see the writings on them. After he turned the last page, he urged her to be patient and faithful as she carried the extra burden a little longer. He promised she would be blessed for it. The old man vanished a moment later, leaving Mary alone. She still had work to do, but that no longer troubled her.
0: That's a great story. It's one that we don't talk about often enough in the church, and so I was
1: really glad that we were able to include it here. Well, and the saints does such a wonderful job with telling it. Again, it reminds us how individual this all is. The Lord works with us as individuals, and he's aware of us, and he helps us in the way that we need when we need it, if we turn to him. I really
0: like the way that saints talked about Mary's struggle, about not only being busy, but also the notion of she is only seeing Joseph and Oliver sitting up in a room or going outside to skip stones. And there is nothing that makes manual labor more difficult than being around people who aren't laboring while you're laboring. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, I'm afraid even if you know intellectually right. that it, it shouldn't be unfair, you're right. Sometimes it, it can it, feel it that It makes
0: way. it hard. Yeah. And so my heart goes out to Mary, and I mm-hmm. think that's a great story. But anyway, so now let's go on to Section 17. So we've talked about 14 through 16. These were revelations given individually to David Whitmer, to John Whitmer, and to their father, Peter Whitmer Sr. Now let's go to 17. We have an introduction given to us by Revelations in Context. The move to Fayette, New York, took place at the beginning of June, and within a month, Joseph and his scribes had completed the translation of the Book of Mormon. At that same time, Joseph's parents and Martin Harris, who had received word that the translation was nearing completion, arrived from Palmyra. Lucy Mack Smith wrote that Harris greatly rejoiced when he heard of the progress of the translation. Although Harris was quite possibly meeting both Cowdery and Whitmer for the first time, the three men bonded through their shared devotion to assist in bringing forth the Book of Mormon. They were particularly interested in certain passages from the Book of Mormon. Now, for those of you who remember our study of the Book of Mormon, both Second Nephi 27, verses 12 to 14, and Ether 5, verses 2 to 3, very explicitly talk about there being three
1: witnesses of this work. Well, and it's interesting maybe to mention that Ether would have been translated first. Remember, the small plates were translated after Mormon's record was done. And so, Ether's toward the end of the book, 2 Nephi 27. It seems like these are pretty close together by the way they would have been translated, is all I'm saying. And this must have really piqued their curiosity.
0: Agreed. Back to the quote. In the course of the work of translation, Joseph Smith History explains, we ascertained that three special witnesses were to be provided by the Lord to whom he would grant that they should see the plates from which this work, the Book of Mormon, should be translated. Now, if you'll remember our discussion of Doctrine and Covenants section 5, there's also an implication there in verses 11 to 13 that there would be witnesses. Back to the quote. Almost immediately after this discovery was made, Joseph wrote, It occurred to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris that they would have me inquire of the Lord to know if they might not obtain of him to be these three special witnesses. And finally, they became so solicitous and teased me so much that at length I complied, and through the Urim and Thummim I obtained of the Lord for them a revelation."
1: And that brings us to section 17. Let's jump in, starting in verse 1. Behold, I say unto you, that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates, and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked to the Lord face to face, and the miraculous directors, which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the border of the Red Sea. That's the Lehihona for those keeping score at home. And it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them, even by that faith which was had by the prophets of old."
0: Now, this is amazing for several reasons, but one of the things I want to point out here is in the very first verse, behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word. Now, it might be a mistake on our part here 200 years later to think to themselves, okay, well, they need to study the scriptures. Well, what scriptures do they have at this point? We have the Bible, and we just barely finished translating the Book of Mormon, but it's certainly not published and printed, and so on and so forth. So think about what word he might be referring to there.
1: Yeah, there's definitely possibilities, and I'm curious to know at what point listening to Joseph falls into that category. So this idea in these first two verses, if we obey and exercise faith in God, we can receive a witness of the truths of the gospel. But it may not be this same witness. So we can look at what's happening to them and say, okay, well, that's not for us. But the principle behind what they're doing and what they're being taught can still apply to us in whatever way God will give us a witness. And of course, as we've been learning, it will likely be in exactly the way that we need, individualized. But remember that with that comes responsibility. Going on in verse 3, and after that you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them by the power of God. And this you shall do, that my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., may not be destroyed, that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in this work.
0: So there's the direct command. You'll see the plates, but then you have an important job, a responsibility to testify of them. And they should do this by the power of God that... Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed. In other words, he would be supported.
1: Yeah, and I'm impressed that the Lord lays that out clearly. It's almost contractual, covenantal, if you will. Mm -hmm. Here's what you need to do in order to get this blessing. And when you receive this blessing, here is what you will be responsible to do.
0: Okay, so let's take a look at the next couple of verses, starting in verse 5. And ye shall testify that you have seen them, even as my servant Joseph Smith Jr. has seen them. For it is by my power that he has seen them, and it is because he had faith. And he has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him, and as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. Wherefore, you have received the same power and the same faith and the same gift like unto him. Now, those are some very amazing statements, but one of the things that I wanted to point out is that testimony in verse 6. The Institute Manual, and again, this is the 2018 Institute Manual, has a quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie in which he calls this out. This is from April 1982, General Conference. He says, One of the most solemn oaths ever given to man is found in these words of the Lord relative to Joseph Smith. And the Book of Mormon. He, meaning Joseph Smith, has translated the book. Even that part which I have commanded him, saith the Lord, and as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. This is God's testimony of the Book of Mormon. In it, deity himself has laid his godhood on the line. Either the book is true or God ceases to be God. There neither is nor can be any more formal or powerful language known to men or gods, end quote. And I would agree with that, Elder McConkie. That is a very powerful testimony. And one more thing to think about. In verse 2 and in verse 5 and in verse 7, there's an emphasis on faith, that it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of the plates that it is because joseph had faith that he has seen the plates and that the witnesses have the same
1: faith given unto them yeah i'm really interested in the extent to which desire plays out in all the revelations we've been talking about the ones certainly today these revelations came about because people desired to know And in this case, they really pester Joseph. It comes across as in a very righteous way that they have a great desire to not just see, which, you know, of course, curiosity would be there, but to accept that responsibility to proclaim what they see. And what's interesting is they don't seem to have an expectation of what it's really going to be like. They just want to, you know, see the plates. But God has something much better in mind for them as he lays out in verse 1. So let's go on to verse 8. And if you do these last commandments of mine, which I have given you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, for my grace is sufficient for you, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it unto you, that I might bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men, Amen. Hmm. So how does this play out? Let's take a look at the account in church history in the fullness of times. As Joseph and his friends finished the translation, their minds turned to a promise the Lord had given in the Book of Mormon and in his revelations to show the plates to three witnesses. Joseph's parents and Martin Harris were visiting the Whitmer farm at the time, and one morning Martin... Oliver and David pleaded with Joseph to let them be the witnesses. Joseph prayed and the Lord answered, saying that if they relied on him wholeheartedly and committed to testify of the truth, they could see the plates. "'You have got to humble yourself before your God this day,' Joseph told Martin specifically, "'and obtain, if possible, a forgiveness of your sins.'" Later that day, Joseph led the three men into the woods near the Whitmer home. They knelt, and each took a turn, praying, to be shown the plates. But nothing happened. They tried a second time, but still nothing happened. Finally, Martin rose and walked away, saying he was the reason the heavens remained closed. Joseph, Oliver, and David returned to prayer, and soon an angel appeared in a brilliant light above them, he had the plates in his hands, and turned them over one by one, showing the men the symbols engraved on each page. A table appeared beside him, and on it were ancient artifacts described in the Book of Mormon-the interpreters, the breastplate, a sword, and the miraculous compass that guided Nephi's family from Jerusalem to the Promised Land. The men heard the voice of God declare, These plates have been revealed. By the power of God, and they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them, which you have seen, is correct, and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. When the angel departed, Joseph walked deeper into the woods and found Martin on his knees. Martin told him he had not yet received a witness from the Lord but he still wanted to see the plates he asked joseph to pray with him joseph knelt beside him and before their words were half uttered they saw the same angel displaying the plates and the other ancient objects tis enough tis enough martin cried mine eyes have beheld mine eyes have beheld
0: from the come follow me manual, there's a section called Voices of the Restoration. Now, this shows up in several of our lessons, and you should pay close attention to it. In this one, we have an excerpt from Lucy Max Smith's history of Joseph Smith by his mother. Quote, it was between three and four o'clock. Mrs. Whitmer and Mr. Smith and myself were sitting in a bedroom. I sat on the bedside. When Joseph came in, he threw himself down beside me. Father, mother, said he, you do not know how happy I am. The Lord has caused the plates to be shown to three more besides me, who have also seen an angel and will have to testify to the truth of what I have said. For they know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people, and I do feel as though I was relieved of a dreadful burden, which was almost too much for me to endure. But they will now have to bear a part, and it does rejoice my soul that I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. Martin Harris then came in. He seemed almost overcome with excess of joy. He then testified to what he had seen and heard, as did also the others, Oliver and David. Their testimony was the same in substance as that contained in the Book of Mormon. Martin Harris particularly seemed altogether unable to give vent to his feelings and words. He said, I have now seen an angel from heaven who has of a surety testified of the truth of all that I have heard concerning the record, and my eyes have beheld him. I also looked upon the plates and handled them with my hands and can testify of the same to the whole world." But I have received for myself a witness that words cannot express, that no tongue can describe. And I bless God in the sincerity of my soul that he has condescended to make me, even me, a witness of the greatness of his work and designs in behalf of the children of men. Oliver and David also joined with him in solemn praises to God for his goodness and mercy. We returned home to Palmyra, New York. The next day, a cheerful, rejoicing little company.
1: (laughs) You know, I love the fact that they were given a responsibility that when they witnessed these things, they testified. And the very first thing, the very first people they came across, they testified. Right. They began to fulfill that responsibility.
0: There is a quote that we actually referenced in an earlier lesson, partially, this quote is contained in the Doctrine and Covenants Institute Manual and Book of Mormon Institute Manual, but it's from a landmark talk in April 1999 General Conference from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks. It's called, The Witness, Martin Harris. I'm including a section of it here. He says, quote, People who deny the possibility of supernatural beings may reject this remarkable testimony, But people who are open to believe in miraculous experiences should find it compelling. The solemn, written testimony of three witnesses as to what they saw and heard, two of them simultaneously and the third almost immediately thereafter, is entitled to great weight. Indeed, we know that upon the testimony of one witness, great miracles have been claimed and accepted by many religious people. And in the secular world, the testimony of one witness has been deemed sufficient for weighty penalties and judgments. Persons experienced in evaluating testimony commonly consider a witness's opportunity to observe an event and the possibility of his bias on the subject. Where different witnesses give identical testimony about the same event, skeptics look for evidence of collusion among them or for other witnesses who could contradict them. Measured against all of these possible objections, the testimony of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon stands forth in great strength. Each of the three had ample reason and opportunity to renounce his testimony, if it had been false, or to equivocate on details if any had been inaccurate. As is well known, because of disagreements or jealousies involving other leaders of the Church, Each one of these three witnesses was excommunicated from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by about eight years after the publication of their testimony. All three went their separate ways, with no common interest to support a collusive effort. Yet to the end of their lives, periods ranging from 12 to 50 years after their excommunications, not one of these witnesses deviated from his published testimony or said anything that cast any shadow on its truthfulness. Furthermore, their testimony stands uncontradicted by any other witnesses. Reject it one may, but how does one explain three men of good character uniting and persisting in this published testimony to the end of their lives? In the face of great ridicule and other personal disadvantage. Like the Book of Mormon itself, there is no better explanation than is given in the testimony itself, the solemn statement of good and honest men who told what they saw.
1: End quote. It's such a that. great thing to have a Supreme Court judge's perspective right. on the power of those <laughs> witnesses.
0: It's not like he doesn't know the law. And that is just a wonderful way to look at the power of these testimonies.
1: Yeah, the 2001 Institute Manual offers some materials to help us understand the final witness of these three. Let's take a look at them. Francis W. Kirkham wrote about Oliver Cowdery's death that, In the year of 1878, David Whitmer said to Elders Orson Pratt and Joseph F. Smith concerning his departure, Oliver died the happiest man I ever saw. After shaking hands with the family and kissing his wife and daughter, he said, Now, I lay me down for the last time. I am going to my Savior. And he died immediately with a smile on his face. The Richmond Democrat carried the following account of David Whitmer. On Sunday evening at 5.30, January 22, 1888. Mr. Whitmer called his family and some friends to his bedside, and, addressing himself to the attending physician, said, Dr. Buchanan, I want you to say whether or not I am in my right mind before I give my dying testimony. The doctor answered, yes, you are in your right mind, for I have just had a conversation with you. He then addressed himself to all around his bedside in these words, Now you must all be faithful in Christ. I want to say to you all, the Bible and the record of the Nephites, the Book of Mormon, is true. So you can say that you have heard me bear my testimony on my deathbed. All be faithful in Christ and your reward will be according to your works. God bless you all. My trust is in Christ forever, worlds without end. Amen. The last testimony of Martin Harris was given to Elder William Harris and Homer, who was with him at the time of his death. Elder Homer recorded, The next day, July tenth, eighteen 1875, marked the end. It was in the evening. It was milking time, and Martin Harris Jr. and his wife Nancy Homer Harris— had gone out to milk and to do the evening's chores. In the house, with the stricken man, were left my mother Eliza, Williams, and Homer, and myself, who had had so interesting a day with Martin Harris at Kirtland. I stood by the bedside, holding the patient's right hand, and my mother at the foot of the bed. Martin Harris had been unconscious for a number of days. When we first entered the room, the old gentleman appeared to be sleeping. He soon woke up. "'and asked for a drink of water. "'I put my arm under the old gentleman and raised him, "'and my mother held the glass to his lips. "'He drank freely, and then he looked up at me "'and recognized me. "'He said, "'I know you. "'You are my friend,' he said. "'Yes, I did see the plates "'on which the Book of Mormon was written. "'I did see the angel. "'I did hear the voice of God.' And I do know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, holding the keys of the holy priesthood. This was the end. Martin Harris, divinely chosen witness of the work of God, relaxed, gave up my hand. He lay back on his pillow, and just as the sun went down behind the Clarkston Mountains, the soul of Martin Harris passed on. Signed, William Harrison Homer. Signed in the presence of Mrs. W. H. Homer, Joseph Homer, Leah Witzow, John A. Witzow. And so are the witnesses, the final witnesses of these three.
0: These are amazing men, and this is an amazing story. I think we are going to find that there are many different people who play a part in the restoration of the church. Some embrace the church and are faithful to the end. Some start out faithful, but then fall away. And some start out faithful and fall away and then come back again. There yeah. are all kinds of different people.
1: And they all have a different place in that work too, different things that they do.
0: It's a remarkable testimony that the Lord can work with us whether we are going to be faithful
1: or not yeah. to further his work. His work will not be stopped. And that if we find ourselves on the wrong path, we can come back. Absolutely. I would like to include my testimony in these testimonies, that this work is true. The Book of Mormon is the Word of God. And I'm so excited that we get a chance to hear the voice of the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants, because that book, more than any other, will help us to gain a testimony of Joseph Smith and his prophetic role.
0: Keep reading your scriptures as you go through these lessons. We're excited to go over them with you. But you need to read them too and gain your own witness and open your spirit to receive that knowledge from the Holy Ghost directly.
1: It's our privilege to do so.
0: And we'll talk to you more about that in our next lesson.
1: We'll see you then.
0: This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
1: But we're really big fans.